When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Holding pocket. Welcome to another episode of the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holies. Hello, Kat. Hi, Kat. How are we all today? Well... Quite displaced. Richard's in... Where are you, Richard? I'm in Chorley. Which is in which part of this sceptred isle? Imagine the northwest of England. Step with me, if you will, <laughs> to Preston. And it's sort of near there. It's famous for the Chorley cake, which is the rival to the Eccles cake, Ooh. as one of the most delicious sweetmeats of the region. Chorley cake made, of course, with short crust pastry. I'm happy to say I'm at the Little Chorley Theatre, and my dressing room is filled to the gunnels with Chorley cake. Have you had them? How many have you had so far? Well, I haven't had any, but I've been to my mother-in-law's for lunch. So I've already had apple crumble and custard. So, And also she's given me a parking to take home. We should do a whole rabbit hole detectives on parking, actually. So I'm getting well stocked up with northern food. And you had a bit of Midland food for breakfast, I think. I did. I breakfasted with friends in Northamptonshire. And, well, in fact, it was you, Charles. And very kind of you set me off. Did you have the famous scrambled famous eggs? Scrambled, scrambled eggs, eggs yes. with the late egg, adding a little perkiness to the dish. Anyway, you seem to have survived. <laughs> <laughs> it was delicious. It does add a luxurious richness to the scrambled eggs. Can I say, when I cleared the plates after you left, I found a little bit under the knife, so you'd hidden that. <laughs> Just saying. I always leave some for Mr. Miller, <laughs> Charles. He was saving space for the cakes, the yes. trolley cakes. It's an old cutlery trick. We'll yeah. be dealing with that. Is it? Yes. yes. Excellent. Very good. Well, should we go on to our topics for the day? Yes. Yes, please. So this week, I think actually we've all been looking into topics that have been sent into us by our listeners because we are getting a bit of a flood of brilliant suggestions. And so we actually have so many to pick from. We've gone for a few. And the first one is actually going to be mine. And it's on famous fakes. And I do wonder if this was slightly inspired by the Piltdown forgery that we've had already. I mean, this is definitely one for the rabbit holes. And it was very difficult to to know which one to pick. Obviously, if you go down the art world and the art history and art fakes, you could be there for years, really. So I've gone for a few. I've gone for a little bit of art. And I've just picked a few that I think were really quite fascinating, starting with one of the sort of greatest 
art forgerers, actually, a very prolific forgerer, a Dutch artist, probably one of the greatest art hoaxes of the 20th century. And it's a man called Han van Meijeren, Meijeren, um, depending on how badly you want to call the, the Dutch name. So he was a Dutch artist who's been described as being of, of limited ability. And so obviously he wasn't getting the recognition he wanted. So he decided to branch out into forgery. Now, he was particularly keen on forging paintings made by Vermeer. So Vermeer, as in the 17th century artist, famous for things like a girl with a pearl earring. And he became extremely successful in this and eventually pocketing the equivalent of about $30 million in selling his paintings. And... It was quite an interesting choice, actually, that he chose Vermeer, and it was quite a clever one. Because how do you pick? Who do you choose? And who do you, do you think you can get away with? And I think part of it for him was, this is a sort of top brand, really, to try to forge. If you can get, with, get away with that, it's actually showing something of, of your talent. And another good reason seems to be that Vermeer didn't actually produce that many paintings, only about 35 or 36 of them, whereas other contemporaries created uh, about 10 times as many, so someone like Rembrandt, for example, which meant that a lot of people were thinking there must be more out there. It was quite easy to convince people that there would be missing Vermeer paintings. Now, when he decided that this was going to be his approach, he started experimenting with how to essentially fake them uh, successfully, how to use different materials. He actually uh, he used sort of a synthetic resin mixed in with his paints to get the right sort of age look in it. And he actually came to fame in 1937, really, or his paintings, I suppose, with one particular painting that really established him as a very successful faker. And it was a painting called Christ and the Disciples at Emmaus. And it was successful especially because it was brought to the attention of an expert by the name of Abraham Bredius, or Bredius, who saw it and was completely convinced. So he was a Vermeer expert, saw this and was convinced that it was real. He wrote an article in the Burlington magazine and really uh, explained how wonderful it was as this sort of aged art historian being confronted finally with a brand new painting, an unknown painting by such a famous great master. And so once he essentially convinced, had convinced himself that this was an original, the rest of the world uh, followed. And after the success, the, the forgeries just kept on coming. So he kept on producing more and more and more of them, especially biblical paintings. And this became one of his specialisms. And eventually, one of them caught the attention of Goering, Hermann Goering, the Nazi uh, leader or the Nazi figure, who actually traded a large number, I think something like 137 looted paintings for one of these fake Vermeers. And it was only after the Second World War that that painting actually led to his downfall because there was a commission or committee that essentially tried to track down all these Nazi paintings and try and reinstate them with their owners. And uh, Van Meegeren's name was attached to this particular Vermeer. So essentially the police came knocking on his door and he was actually accused of collaborating with the Nazis. Nobody at this point realised it was a fake and collaboration at that time was a really serious crime. So in order to get out of that, he, he actually confessed and sort of said, no, really, it's, it's not real. <laughs> so really, I was doing something really good because I was getting all these other paintings, these sort of illegally obtained paintings. 
And then, of course, nobody really believed him. So when he was brought to trial, in order to prove that he was, in fact, not a collaborator, but a faker of paintings, he convinced the authorities that he could paint a new one so he could do exactly the same thing and replicate it in order to prove his innocence, which is sort of slightly bizarre because actually he wasn't innocent at all. So he did convince them in the end, so he got away with his charge of collaboration, but he was convicted to a year in prison in 1947 for forgery. But he actually died uh, two months later of a heart attack and hadn't served a single day at all. But he has said that he was extremely proud of being having so successfully pulled off this great feat of being a forgerer. So I quite, I quite like his sort of audacity. In yeah, this. it's incredible. I mean, I suppose one of the other reasons he chose Vermeer is because they were so valuable. You know, it wasn't just choose a great artist who hasn't got many but they were at the top of their value weren't they then absolutely so he was clearly so successfully able to obtain really quite vast amounts of money as well as well as sort of having had this chip on his shoulder for such a long time having been told that he wasn't actually a very good artist and then really he's up there with the with the great masters so that was a good strategy i think yes it's kind of interesting isn't it it's hugely talented and yet Due to the uh, slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, he finds himself obliged to fake a Dutch master with a skill that manages to persuade experts of years of experience in the field that it's the real thing. There's something kind of rather tragic about that, isn't there? A little part of me wants him to get away with it. I know this is a terrible thing, and Charles, I would hate to think that of the paintings (laughs) hanging at Allthorpe, there might be doubtful attributions about... But I bet there are doubtful attributions about... Well, they're doubtful attributions about everything, really, aren't they? Provenance is a very difficult thing to establish because a painting might be a bit by someone, by school of someone, not necessarily something faked by someone deliberately trying to mislead. It's a complicated area. Yes, and I think that's always been the case. When I look back on my family's collection, which, you know, they've been adding to for 500 years, it's amazing how the identity of the painters have changed over the times. You know, one of the great paintings that my family had was supposedly a Titian. Well, it really isn't. And it hasn't been seen as such since it was bought in about 1750. And I imagine top dollar was paid for it. And nobody was really expert enough to say, well, don't buy that. It is, it's not by that person. So they weren't fakes so much as... Uh, just wrong attributions and people cheerfully going along with that because it made commercial sense. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think that's the commercial part is one of it. And also I think people want to, like this expert, he was so delighted to have found a new unknown. People want to see it, don't they? Because if you have this sort of finite number of paintings by one of your most favoured artists. Everyone wants to find another one. So people, I think, want to believe in it. Well, Richard's hit on a very good thing there as well, which is the importance of provenance. So if a painting has been hanging in a museum or a house for a very, very long time, the chances are that it's more likely to be authentic. But at the same time, you know, it's easy to mess around with the actual identity and say, well, it's not Rubens, it's so-and-so. We had one, actually. It was quite interesting. We weren't sure if it was a Rubens, and we sold it about 15 years ago to pay for a new roof. And it had been identified as School of Rubens until, I can't remember what they're called, some collectors used to have their whole collection painted in a canvas. And it was clear from the canvas that this painting of ours was featured in from 300 years ago, that it was the original. And the one that happened to be in Detroit in America was most likely the copy. 
And that's what convinced the experts that this was the real thing. So your man copying the Vermeers, Van Meegeren, was not able to point to that. He was just bringing out something that was very, very good, yeah. uh, hoping that that would be enough in the style of that it would convince the experts. Yeah. And Goering, a delighted Goering, was yes. completely shafted. That's very good. Absolutely. He actually comes into one of my second films. I had originally thought I'd have, you know, 10 of these or something, but they're all too interesting in their own right. And the second forgery that I wanted to talk about was the Hitler diaries that were, well, allegedly discovered in the 1980s. And this came about in April 1983, when the German magazine Stern held a press conference to huge numbers of television crews and journalists all over the world, announcing that they had come across this huge big collection of Hitler's personal diaries that had been lost in a plane crash in 1945, and they were going to be publishing them. According uh, to the magazine, these diaries would completely rewrite Hitler's biography and essentially the entire history of the Third Reich. So again, we have this sort of, clearly this is something that people really want, isn't it? Everyone was looking for that sort of thing. So it was clear that people wanted to believe in it. And they did publish a special ed edition with various extracts from it, uh, massively increasing their circulation. But it took only about two weeks before these were uh, exposed as fakes and attributed to somebody called Conrad Kujau, a small-time crook and prolific forgerer. And Conrad uh, was known as Connie. He's got a really quite interesting story of why he started doing this. He was posing as an antique stealer by the name of Herr Fischer and uh, was supplying a businessman called Fritz Stiefel with a number of different Nazi artefacts. So he doesn't start with the diaries, he starts with other things, manuscripts, artworks allegedly by Hitler himself. And eventually he introduces one of these diaries, one single forged diary. And Stiefel then compared this to his other forged manuscripts and said, well, they all match, so they must be the same, which is quite a clever move. And eventually Stiefel goes on to show it to a reporter for Stern magazine called Heidemann. And he was exceptionally interested in the Nazis. In fact, reportedly, he'd even had an affair with Goering's daughter after being sent on an assignment to buy his yacht weirdly. But he got a wind of these diaries and he thought these were going to be a sensation and he wanted to know uh, about the rest of them. He even went to the East German crash site that they were allegedly found in. He visited the site, was completely convinced that they were found there and Stern offered nearly 9 million marks, which was around 2.35 million pounds in the early 1980s. So a vast amount of money for these diaries. It was a 60-volume set, and they sold the serial, serial rights to various news outlets, including the Sunday Times. So they all thought this was a, a big scoop, obviously. And various historians got involved as well, including the historian Hugh Trevor Roper, who'd written about the last days of Hitler, for example. And he had been sceptical originally, and eventually that scepticism was proven true, because when they were examined properly, it was shown that they were fakes and this was discovered by things like the signature wasn't accurate the paper and the ink were clearly post-war materials and apparently the bindings had been aged with tea <laughs> the sort of thing you do as a child to create a sort of treasure map or something but also lots of the facts in there if you look at the, what was in there some of the facts wouldn't have been available to Hitler at the time. But you see it's so funny you say that Kat because 
Uh, you were born around this time. I mean, Richard and I, we can remember this really well, can't we, Richard? I mean, it's just one of those things. Okay, I remember yeah. Hugh Trevor Roper being wheeled out at a press conference and this very distinguished historian destroying his reputation with no malice, I'm sure, yeah. you know, but he was totally convinced. And it's very easy for us to sort of poo-poo people for being convinced. But I think it goes with the territory of what you said with the portrait. It's when you really, and you've mentioned this, it's when you really want to believe that it's true. But also, I mean, questions of attribution, again, are complicated, aren't they? Lots of factors come into play, our desire for something to be true. And I guess that very rarely would you look at something and it would be an absolutely clear case of whether it was or was or it wasn't. You'd have to make judgments about individual elements for that. And that might just nudge you over the edge towards a decision you might later rue. Hugh Trevor Roper, Lord Dacre as he was, his sort of reputation never recovered. And I remember him being portrayed by Alan Bennett in a drama relevant to our topic of discussion, sitting on a one of those drive-around lawnmowers and looking rather ridiculous. And it was quite painful to see a reputation that was once so high reduced to almost a sort of sitcom proportions. Mm. Yes, I can imagine. And I keep being sent pictures of, of artefacts, Viking artefacts especially, and people saying, is this real? Is this? I don't go into it at all because I don't really want to do that because I, it, it is, if you just see the object itself, it's, I mean, sometimes it's very, very obvious, but most of the time it's really not. And you do need a lot of expertise and you can really put your entire reputation on the line. And so I think personally, it's, I find that best avoided, really. It's a big thing, of course, in the history of the church because of the cult of relics, which was so very, very vigorous indeed, and the importance and the value of a relic that had a respectable prominence of an apostle, for example. You know, St Hugh of Lincoln, who's Mm. one of my favourite saints, not little St Hugh, who's a horrible fake saint, but big St Hugh, who's a real saint. He went to visit some monks in in an abbey in France, and they had the arm of Mary Magdalene. And he liked it so much and wanted it so much for Lincoln Cathedral that he knelt down to venerate it and bit off a finger and took it home. (laughs) (laughs) But it was actually, it was for money, wasn't it, Richard, I think? I remember when Henry I, when he founded Reading Abbey, he hoovered up, you know, the usual Christ's foreskin, which I think there are many, many of, but things that people would come, pilgrims would come to, and then they would leave money for the abbey to sustain it. It was equivalent of Madame Two Swords in a way. You were having something that people wanted to come and see and, and venerate. I mean, it's all right now because there's someone like you comes along, cat with your special sonic toothbrush, rubbing, <laughs> scraping the plaque off an ancient tooth <laughs> and working out whether... Mary Magdalene like chamomile tea or not but I mean there's an interesting one recently it was the feast of St John Chrysostom recently one of the great saints of the eastern early church and there are three people who claim to have his head (laughs) and they each produce his preserved head in a reliquary on his feast day and each claim that it's the real thing one of the claims is based on the fact that the ear into which St Paul the Apostle spoke although St Paul the Apostle was long dead is incorrupt and that's held up as a very good reason to take this relic seriously. Excellent. And Kat, what's your favourite fact then? Well, I mean, there's so many in this, really, I think. But I did like very briefly a different, very recent fraud, which was a Latvian meteorite from <laughs> 2009, where it was reported that this fiery meteor-like object had fallen in the field near the Estonian border in, in Latvia. And it apparently left a crater about 20 metres wide. But we're talking 2009, so it's very recent here. And you'd think that people would sort of gotten onto that quite quickly, but you have emergency services, military personnel, 
coming, lots of interest, and even scientists initially saying, yes, this really was a meteor. Turns out it was actually a, a Swedish-based telecommunications company that had created this entire fraud in order to use it as a publicity campaign and actually also apparently draw attention away from Latvia's economic crisis and towards something more interesting. <laughs> I mean, like, it's an interesting reason for doing it, but they were obviously very uh, told off very quite severely. There was a huge backlash against it. So I think we're moving on to you now, Charles. Oh, yes. On a very, uh, very important topic, again, suggested by, by two people, actually, Karen and Susan, and something we all think we know, well, I don't know if we know the history of, but that's cutlery. Yes, well, cutlery nowadays would be a sort of a problem fraught with snobbery and social mores bound up in it and how you use it. That awful thing of if you sit down at a table and you've got an array of knives and spoons on your right and forks on the left, what do you do? And in fact, you just go from the outside for each course if you're in such a setting. But the snobbery around cutlery is something that I find so intriguing. I mean, there's there's a famous scene in Downton Abbey where Carson the butler is testing a trainee footman on spoons and he shows him an array of spoons and the trainee butler goes teaspoon egg spoon melon grapefruit spoon jam spoon and then he's stumped on the last one and Carson's outraged because it's a bouillon spoon a sort of like a miso soup one because it has to be smaller because bouillon is served in a smaller bowl and this would have been normal to people in that era And, well, obviously it's a Julian Fellows creation, but if we look at what we know went down with the Titanic, there were 100 grape scissors, 400 asparagus tongs, and 1,000 oyster forks, uh, which nestled nearer to the oysters than anyone imagined they would, I imagine. But you're dealing with an extraordinary array of weaponry for the table. And, of course, I, I know what Richard's thinking. We're thinking of that John Betjeman poem, which is a sort of an attack on... Nouveau Riche people, which he wrote, and it's called How to Get On in Society. And the very first line is, phone for the fish knives, Norman, as cook is a little unnerved. You kiddies have crumpled the serviettes, and I must have things daintily served. So fish knives are seen as this very non-you, unacceptable addition to the table. So fish knives were not part of the culinary experience for a very long time because fish was seen as something you had to be really careful eating because the the normal steel, before stainless steel came around, would turn black if touched by something as corrosive as lemon juice, which is often served with fish, of course. So it was only with the invention of stainless steel in 1913 in Sheffield that uh, it was possible to really use knives for fish. Before that, it would be silver forks. It would be very wealthy people would use silver forks because silver doesn't have the problems that ordinary steel has with going black or rusting, etc. But if we look at original cutlery, I was really interested to find out that forks are actually a very recent invention as far as European society is concerned. A knife was always used at the dining table for obvious reasons. It was usually a hunting dagger. It wasn't a specific piece of cutlery. It was something you just carried on yourself and you used for chopping up your meat on your plate. And you used it often for sticking the cutter piece into your mouth. And it was actually the great French 
Cardinal Duke Richelieu, who was the main advisor to Louis XIII of France, who decided this was unacceptable. He hated bad manners, and so he made it fashionable. He insisted on it in his house to start with, but it soon rolled out to be very fashionable, and then indeed made almost compulsory by Louis XIV to have rounded knives with blunt edges to make it all a bit more civilized. Spoons, we know, were have always been part of human eating or drinking. We find them in ancient Egypt, uh, back to 1000 BC. And also, it's quite clear that Neanderthal cultures, etc., use very crude spoon-like instruments uh, made of seashells and animal bones to scoop things up. The Romans had two types of spoon. One was called the ligula, and that was for soups and soft foods. And then they had a, a sort of sturdier one, a cochleari, which was a small rounder spoon, and that was used for shellfish and eggs. The first mention of spoons I come across in England is under Edward I in the mid-13th century, and it's in his wardrobe accounts. Uh, and they've actually been part of the ceremonial part of crowning the kings and queens of England since about that period where a coronation spoon was recorded in 1349. has been used really uh, ever since in that. But it was as part of the tableware, it, was, it became more popular in the Middle Ages, you know, from about the 14th century. The rise of pewter made it possible, pewter being a much cheaper metal to make than silver. And a little rabbit hole, I, I believe, and I, I was trying to check this out, but Putney in England, one of the parts of London, was the place, why well, it's got its name, it was the place for pewter to be made. And forks, that really is a newcomer to the table. In Bronze Age China, it was used for cooking and serving, not for eating. Most diners ate with their fingers and a knife. And in fact, it was seen as really bad form to use a fork. And in 1003, the Greek niece of the Byzantine emperor, Basil II, arrived in Venice to marry Giovanni, a son of the Doge of Venice. And she arrived with this case of golden forks that she used at the wedding feast. And this was seen as absolutely disgusting. And <laughs> so she was told, uh, she died of the plague, and this chronicler, saint called Peter Damien suggested it was God's punishment for using a fork. He actually says that she used a certain golden instrument with two prongs and thus carried it to her mouth. This woman's vanity was hateful to Almighty God and so unmistakably he did take his revenge and he killed her supposedly for using a fork. It's really extraordinary but we do know that finger bowls were a very important part of the culture before forks were used and people used sage and rosemary and lemon they all had an antibacterial quality, which people were sort of semi-conscious of, because using your fingers to eat is a, can be a very tricky business. And it wasn't until 1533 when Catherine de' Medici, one of the great European icons of the 16th century, married Henry II of France and arrived in her dowry with a, a, an array of forks from Cellini, the Renaissance goldsmith. So we think of the knife, fork and spoon as real perennials, but they're really not at all. And if we go further afield into chopsticks, these were probably um, brought about originally from twigs that were used for fishing out things in a boiling pot with safety. And by 400 BC, there was a sort of problem in Asia with fuel conservation. So small pieces of meat were chopped up and cooked to save on the cooking time. And this meant that you didn't need to use a fork, and it was much easier just to use chopsticks for eating. And by 500 AD, Japan, Vietnam, and Korea all had chopsticks as a very important part of their 
weaponry at the table, as I say. But there was a sort of folklore around chopsticks. Even today, you have this superstition that if you have an uneven pair of chopsticks, you're going to be missing your boat or plane on your travel. So there's a lot of mystery and mystique around really common or garden tools for eating. I did an April Fool this year, and I published on Facebook on April the 1st that I had been appointed Custos Cochleari for the coronation of King Charles. And this was a historic role in which a bachelor clergyman of over 60 years of age was responsible for looking after the anointing spoon for the coronation rite, which had to be kept in um, a tangerine silk harness round his breasts <laughs> to keep it at room temperature. And after the anointing, the vimper, this investment, was ceremoniously burned. Ha, ha, ha. Nearly everyone believed it, including a quite significant constitutional expert who DM'd me to congratulate me on the post. <laughs> I love that, Richard, because there's so many of your things come together there. You know, the, the love of ceremony... And the dashing colour that you chose for the sack to be uh, holding it. No, it's brilliant. And also, people were just lapping up coronation facts then, weren't they? So you, you hit a, a rich seam of possibilities. <laughs> it's very good. I remember seeing that, actually. One of the things I always wonder about is how the fact that you've got chopsticks in Asia, not in Europe, how actually those utensils affect the food that's being cooked and how it's being cooked. So things like sticky rice, which is easier to eat with chopsticks as opposed to sort of non-sticky rice. Like how do those utensils actually affect it and how they over time? I, I thought that was really interesting. Is that something you came across? I did. So one of the reasons that the Medici's used forks was with their puddings or desserts, whichever you call it, because they tended to be very sticky. And it's exactly that. They didn't want to have sticky fingers. So that's why that came in. They were particularly into their sweet meats and, and sticky sweet things. And so it made sense to develop a tool that, you know, you didn't want to be wielding a fork with some dainty little thing. So that was one of the reasons they came to the fore. It's like, you know, so many topics we've covered. It really needed a, a major figure to make it compulsory. So Riccio, the de Medici's, when these people said, this is what we're going to be doing, then people fell into line on that. I'm of the era of a man who had great aunts who were unwed because of the lack of men after the First World War. And what they seemed to do, perhaps it was a compensatory thing, was to fill canteens with cutlery of esoteric use. Grape scissors. I remember grape scissors galore. But the weirdest ones were special knives and spoons for eating grapefruit and there was a serrated knife but with a curved blade to enable you to separate your segments and then you dug into it with a spoon with a sort of pointy end and I can remember it would be unthinkable to my great aunt Phyllis that you didn't have proper cutlery for trying to eat a grapefruit she would have thought that tantamount to the ravens flying away from the Tower of London. Well, there was a spoof done of Downton Abbey, going back to that about nine years ago, where George Clooney visits the set. It was a charity thing they did. And they had Julian Fellows in the corner, and he's berated by the man acting the Earl. And he goes, you know, you kill us all, and you, you don't seem to care. But if someone eats a grapefruit with the wrong spoon, you go berserk. And Julian Fellows goes, yes, but that's cutlery as if it's more important than anything. And that sounds as though it's in tune with your great aunt. <laughs> also, how dangerous is a grapefruit spoon? Have you ever eaten with one of those? Yes. It, it looks like a teaspoon, but it's got teeth. 
I've got one. Oh I've got my one. god, you've got to be so careful. If you <laughs> sort of suck on one of those, you're going to be in emergency room. Do you have any particularly weird, I mean, you must have a lot of cutlery toys. Yeah, we have some odd ones. There's a sort of gougy, spoony thing for getting bone marrow out of bones at the table, not in the kitchen. My father, my father was addicted to Stilton cheese around Christmas time, and he had a sort of Stilton gouge. Uh, <laughs> so rather than cutting a Stilton, which apparently is not allowed, you would sort of gouge out the middle bit. And then the side would just get more and more rotten with sort of heaving maggots. But he would plunge this thing into the middle and pull out a, a gouge of Stilton. So my favourite fact is so obscure. So I was thinking, has anyone ever been murdered with a spoon? So I, was, I looked into that. And so there was advice on how to murder someone with a spoon. And it said, basically, put the spoon in your pocket and strangle them. Uh, <laughs> but then I did come across a film from 2008 called the horribly slow murderer with the extremely inefficient weapon. And it won five international contests. It was made for $600. It's a 10-minute short in which a man called Jack is haunted by another sort of demonic-looking fellow who keeps hitting him with a spoon. And Jack has had enough of this after quite a lot of being hit with a spoon and stabs this figure in the neck but finds that his attacker is actually immortal. And he's known as Gino Saji, which means silver spoon in Japanese. Anyway, Jack, undeterred by the immortality, tries to blow him up with dynamite and shoot him with guns, etc., to no avail. And the film gets to the sort of final stage with Jack crawling in the desert, being hit with a spoon, and the spoon breaks. And you think, ah, oh, great, he's going to be saved. But then Gino Saji pulls open his jacket and reveals he's got dozens of spoons. And that's the end of the movie. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, the horribly slow murderer with the extremely inefficient weapon. Excellent. I'm going to be Googling that as soon as we leave, I think. Ten minutes of your time. Yeah. But it did win. Honestly, it won five awards. So. Amazing. I love that. And that's the sort of thing that we would expect from you as well, Charles, <laughs> to go something gruesome at the end. <laughs> Brilliant. So that leaves us then with the last one, Richard. And this week you've been looking into a topic that was submitted by a listener called Sybil, and that is national anthems. Yes, national anthems. What a useful function they perform. Where would we be at a sporting tournament? whether or not national anthems to be played as the athletes, the victors, stand on their podiums to receive their gold medals. Well, actually, it doesn't go back that far. Stirring songs of political importance, stirring songs to rouse troops to battle, that kind of thing's been around for a sort of while, but they didn't get formalised until a bit later. Now, the oldest national anthem in which words and music um, have forever been together is the Wilhelm Hus. And it's the Dutch national anthem, the national anthem of the Netherlands, I should say, now. And it goes back to the 1570s. It's a very interesting one, and it's a very weird one. William of Orange was trying to persuade the King of Spain that independence for the Spanish Netherlands would be a very good idea. It wasn't going down very well with the King of Spain. So he kind of rallied his troops with a song, or somebody rallied the troops to a song which expressed that aspiration for Dutch independence, but in rather an unusual way. The tune was taken, actually, from a French musical satire on the failures of Protestants to besiege Chartres. The Prince de Condé failed to take Chartres, and as a result, a French satirical song was written about that. So the Protestants, in order to kind of tip their noses at the French, took that tune and turned it, it said, into an anthem 
uh, for Protestant supremacy. So it was a sort of attack anthem, or rather a sort of counter-attack anthem. But for some reason it was taken up, and then it just became woven into the life of the Netherlands as it sought an identity. It was only actually formally adopted as the anthem of the Netherlands in the 1930s, caused a bit of a hoo-ha, caused a bit of a stink. Why? Because it was seen as being an anthem which gave expression to royalist sentiments, and that wasn't in keeping with people of socialist convictions indeed. Then, of course, along came the Second World War and the occupation of the Netherlands by the armies of the Third Reich, and it became a sort of rallying song for those who wished to assert the independence of the Netherlands against the Nazi occupiers, and so it kind of became dignified again and continues to this day. It's sung with enormous lusty enthusiasm. Now, the British National Anthem, or the English National Anthem, that's controversial too, because they're always controversial, because to express an idea of nationhood is always tricky when ideas of nationhood are themselves contested. But God Save the King, as we've got to know it again now, is God Save the Queen for most of our lifetimes, obviously. The tune's a bit mysterious. Nobody really knows who it's by. Some say Bull, some say Purcell, but it's never really been properly attributed. Um, The words go back in one form or another to the 18th century, and really it was in response to the threat of the Jacobite Rebellion. So in 1745, whenever it was, Bonnie Prince Charlie, the Battle of Preston Pans, the southern march of the Scottish Jacobites towards England, as far as Derby, I think, didn't they? produced a a huge reaction in England and this patriotic song in which loyalty to the monarch was bound up with loyalty to the notion of the union, I think. Another reason why it's a controversial one. And if you look at the words of our national anthem in the verses which are rarely sung, you'll find that some of them are quite sort of eye-poppingly direct in their insistence that the Scots should come to heel under English domination. So that's that one. It kind of just got worked into the popular fabric. It was sung in the theatres, for example, when the king attended. When George III recovered from, I think, his first bout of insanity, he went to Weymouth to take the cure like you do. And I think at Lyndhurst on the way, people were so pleased to see him with his wits restored that they came out and they sang, God save the king, according to Fanny Burney. She writes about it in her diary. And they interspersed the singing of the stanzas with the words, huzzah, huzzah, because it was seen that somehow the well-being of the monarch represented the well-being of the nation. We all wanted a bit of that. Now, antiquity, well, we've talked about the Dutch one being the oldest one. The English-British one is pretty old too. The oldest component one is the Japanese national anthem, the Kimigayo. That also has the distinction of being one of the shortest. It consists of four lines. But the four lines of the Japanese national anthem were composed probably around the year 900. So very, very, very ancient indeed. The tune, well, the first tune was provided by an Irish bandmaster because they felt they needed one. Uh, And that was considered to be unsingable by Japanese people. So there was a bit of a competition. They got some Japanese composers to come up with it. It's very slow and it's very sad, the Kimigayo. And it's also very controversial. As recently as 1999, the government decided that it should be sung as a sort of mark of respect for the nation and nationhood by school children at the beginning of the school day. But this was resisted by teachers who felt that it was an assertion of a kind of old imperial idea of Japan 
that had very much was contrary to their sentiments following the Second World War. So this kind of to and fro bit, pupils were made to do it, ordered to do it by local authorities. Teachers went into revolt. In the end, some poor schoolmaster in Hiroshima took his own life, and a law was passed after that trying to regulate the singing of the four-line Kimigayo of Japan. Now, you might be wanting a longer anthem. I don't know. I'm <laughs> quite short myself. But if you wanted a long one, Uruguay, which is very good, has, I think, 15 stanzas. Uruguay is the longest single anthem in a go. So it's 105 bars of music, and it can last as long as six minutes. Now, you might be depressed if you're looking at Uruguay lining up for a football match, and there's old Suarez <laughs> showing his gnashes to sing six minutes of a national anthem, but they do a fortunately shortened version of it before a sporting fixture. But if you're really looking for a long national anthem, look no further than Greece, which has 158 stanzas. Now, the reason it has 158 stanzas is that a lot of national anthems really were created. They're quite recent phenomena. They, they sort of came around in the 19th century. And it was really with the kind of desire and the aspiration for nationhood on those nations which have perhaps been part of huge empires before. So Greece constantly fighting with the Ottomans and so on. As national identity began to form, then an anthem was required too. The anthem is quite detailed in its handling of recent Greek history. There's a stanza, interestingly, about the lynching of Patriarch Gregory V, which is kind of a detail that seems rather niche, I suppose, for the purpose of national anthem. Again, when it comes to a sporting fixture, it's very, very much shortened. Some of them are absolutely lovely. What's the best? Well, I don't know. The Marseillaise, I think, is a smashing national anthem. Absolutely cracker. Where was the Marseillaise composed? Well, Marseille, you think. Well, you're wrong. It's actually in Strasbourg, but it was taken up by the Fédéré of Marseille in the revolutionary years in France, and that's how it got its kind of currency. Again, incredibly bloodthirsty. If you look at the words, is it they're all waiting for the football to begin? There's a bit where they're talking about the slitting of the throats of wives and children. So it's kind of a martial one. Martial one? You want a martial one? Look no further than Spain. It's an incredibly jolly tune. And it would be the kind of thing, it's called the, the Royal March. Some people call it the March of the Grenadiers. And it does have a kind of very militaristic feel to it. Interesting distinction as well. It has no official words. That's one of only four anthems, I think, to which there are no words. What that means, of course, there are words, lots of words, but no one could agree on the words because Franco's words were not suitable for a post-Franco as well. So often the Spanish national anthem is not sung at all. You asked favourite ones, and I think that the South African one is absolutely fantastic. I can't even pronounce it, but it's so beautiful. And it does bring together, you know, I, I think South Africa has 11 or 12 official national languages. I think the disembodied voice can check that out. But everyone I know in South Africa, and I did, I lived there for five years, but they can all get behind this beautiful, it's a very African sound, but it's so lyrical and stunning. Yeah, it's a lovely answer. And I think five of the 11 official languages of South Africa are used in that. Switzerland has four, I think. You know, off the national anthem where you have different groups with different languages and ethnicities that becomes a bit problematic I'm sorry to say this but the Norwegian national anthem is a dirge I hope that doesn't offend you too much no, some of them are just very dreary brilliant. no offence to Norway it is it's not no. a lively tune it doesn't really motor along I'm sure the yes, sentence expressed yes but it's serious it's important it's you know expressing our independence and our love of our country and 
I don't mean to be rude, but it's a very serviceable anthem, and indeed it does all those things, but the tune, I'm afraid, is a bit of a... Now, who am I talking Because I think the tune of the British-English national anthem is one of the dreariest. So, do you know why sports people, by the way, sing it before sporting games? Do you know what no. that goes back to, the singing of national anthems? Well, I'm going to tell you. It goes back to Wales playing the All Blacks in 1905. And the All Blacks came on, the New Zealand rugby team, and they did their haka, which seemed rather startling to the people of Wales. But the people of Wales, being a spirited nation, immediately responded by singing Land of My Fathers, well, in Welsh. Gwad, gwad, you know, the kind of thing. And so that was really when it became the custom and major sporting fixtures between nations for people to start singing their national anthems. Here's an interesting fact, by the way, little-known fact, who is the only person to have composed a national anthem and also won an Oscar? Well, the answer is Hans Eisler, who composed the anthem for the GDR, the old East Germany, the German Democratic Republic, who also received an Oscar for um, a film when he went to Hollywood after the war and became a film composer. The loveliest national anthem of all is undoubtedly the Russian. Hear it and be stirred, hear it and feel the aspirations of a people who have suffered unimaginable indignities and hardships and yet still coming together to protect the motherland, the fatherland, or whatever you want to call it. So good, it was used by the communists. And then they tried to come up with a new one when the Soviet era ended, but everyone liked the old one so much, they just wrote some new lyrics for it. They did quite a bit of that, actually, the German national anthem, which we knew a tune so good by Haydn, one of the few national anthems written by a composer of note. Deutschland, Deutschland über alles, actually adopted by the Weimar Republic in 1922. Obviously, the Nazis sang that with great enthusiasm. After the fall of the Third Reich, they just went skip straight to the verse, which was all about unity and brotherhood, but they kept the tune and all that. Listen, I'm going on about national anthems, we've got to think about it, but would you want a favourite fact? It's not really a favourite fact. Yes, please. Yes, please. Well, it's a sort of a question for you. Now, I'm going to sing you, and I'm sorry about this, don't get too excited. Here you are, war-torn centuries of the 19th, late 19th, early 20th centuries, and the British troops are rallying to the cause. God save our gracious King, long live our noble King, God save the King. Well, what might the armies of the Imperial German forces be singing? They'd be singing this... Heil dir im Siegekranz, Herrscher des Vaterlands, Heil Kaiser dir. But then if you were to go to the mountainous region of Liechtenstein in the Principality there, what would they be singing there as their national anthem? Well, I happen to have it here. Oben am Jürgen Rhein, lehnet sich Liechtenstein an Alpenhörn. Well, let us instead go to Russia, Imperial Russia. Boże Zarya Krani, Slav Nomu Dolgidni, Dina Zemli. You may recognise that tune. Of course, God Save the King. For some reason, it's the tune that's been most enthusiastically taken up by the nations of the earth. And I turn to you again, Kat, because I'm sure I don't need to tell you that the Norwegian royal national anthem not the national national anthem but the royal national anthem is sung to the very same tune isn't that right yes good sing the kong and void i'm not going to oh, sing, on, it, sing it i've just sang four. It. <laughs> no i was never a pop star was i so sorry <laughs> you can't get me <laughs> there we go well, that's brilliant though 
I think we had a fact earlier from our disembodied voice as well. Uh, yes, so South Africa does have 11 official languages and Richard was right, five feature in their national anthem. Um, I believe also there is a famous American song that also has the same tune as God Save the King. Yeah. My country, tis of the sweet land of liberty. I don't know why that... Because I think if you want a dirgy national anthem, well, then ours is the dirgiest of all, but perhaps that's what makes it so available to other people wishing to express their own national sentiments. And memorable. It's a very easy song to, to do, isn't it? The, the real contrast is with the Latin American anthems, really. Those anthems that were kind of written as an expression of kind of the new national movements for liberation, because they were very much influenced by opera. So the Uruguayan one, the Paraguayan one, the Brazilian one, they all literally sound like operas by Rossini. Brilliant, I love that. So we're going to have to wrap it up, but I think I just wanted to ask you, Richard, if you were going to compose a national anthem, a new national anthem for England or for Britain, what would it be? Gosh, that's an interesting one. I mean, it's not my original one, but... I. I think it was Jeremy Hardy who suggested it really should be the theme tune from The Archers, which I think is probably right. Some patriotic words would be sung to the tune of The Archers. Excellent. What about you, Charles? What would you have? Well, I, I agree with Richard that the one we have is a bit of a dirge. I don't know. I mean, we do have a pretty good musical tradition, don't we? Not many great classical ones. I think you would have to go for something more contemporary, wouldn't you? We'd probably end up thinking things could only get better or something like that and make Brian Cox even richer. very good so i'm afraid we're going to have to get to the bit that i don't know are we looking forward to this bit or are we dreading it i can't quite tell really i face it with equanimity okay good bravery i would say (laughs) (laughs) so our disembodied voice is now going to undemocratically declare this week's winner please Well, the answer might make Richard break into spontaneous song once again, but I think I'll take the risk. So we're going to have to hand it to national anthems this week. Yes. I think very brave. Also, the fact that you sung it all is really, I mean, there's bonus points galore there. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) I don't know how we can compete with that, Charles, but we're going to have to, aren't we? Get my Tongan nose flute out. (laughs) Yes. But well done. Congratulations, Richard. Thank you. Very good. But before we go, we have to let our listeners know what we're going to be sorting up on for next week. And Richard, can you please talk us through exorcisms? Oh, I'd be delighted to. Yes, thank you. Brilliant. And I think this sort of follows a little bit on from forgeries and fakes and things. Charles, stage disappearances? Wonderful. No, very happy with that. Thank you. And I'm going to go with dragons. Oh. I feel like there's a sort of link between all of these somehow. <laughs> I don't quite know how, but we'll see. So that's it then for this week. Thank you everyone out there for listening to the podcast. And as always, if you haven't already, please do subscribe to The Rabbit Hole Detectives and leave us a review because that really helps other people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. Don't forget you can send us an email if you'd like, especially if you would like to suggest a topic. That's rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. You can find us in the Daily Telegraph every Wednesday in our Rabbit Hole Detectives column discussing our favourite facts from the show. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice. I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have been changed several times since then. Goodbye. Bye.
Thank you.